0: So we are in Revelation chapter 13 this morning. For those of you who this is your first time, or at least first time in a while, we are. Um, it does say at the top of the notes, week 17. This is the 17th week. In case that's not obvious, um, and if you would like notes, they're back there, both in English and Spanish. Um, and so this chapter is the long, much anticipated chapter in Revelation, where we see the numbers 666 in succession, right? <gasps> and the beast and antichrist, all that stuff, right? is probably the most familiar part or theme of the book of Revelation to the entire world, okay? Not just the church, but anybody who is in, probably who grew up in this country or has been here very long at all, has at least heard or seen a book or a movie or something referencing 666 or the Mark of the Beast, or the Antichrist, or something related to that. And it's also one of the things that we Christians have been made fun of by the world probably the most, is our obsession with that topic, all right? And so I'm going to do my best, all right? There are a number of rabbit holes to go down, but I'm going to avoid that and just give you a bunch of verses, and if you feel like diving into the rabbit hole, then go right ahead on your own time, all right? I myself have been diving down the rabbit hole far too long, and I'm ready to come out of the rabbit hole on this topic, all right? So that's what we're going to do this morning, um, and then I'll do my best at the end to kind of connect it to our life, okay? Do some analysis, tell you what I think about it, and then connect it, all right? And if this is your first time, just know we're not talking about 666 every Sunday, all right? We just, all right, this is not our thing, all right? It's just what we're happy to be doing today, all right? I realized this morning it might be a little, because some churches, this is like all they do, all right? It's not what we're doing, all right? It's just where we landed today. Okay, so just a quick kind of intro um, is that uh, chapter 13 will get insight into the two primary strategies or weapons that the dragon or Satan uses in the age that we are in right now. To attempt to destroy the church. Last week we saw this picture of a, a woman who is the church, I told you, and she is, gives birth to Jesus, and the dragon or Satan is upset about it. He hates it. And so he wants to, if he can't destroy the dragon, or if, excuse me, if he can't destroy Jesus, he wants to destroy the church. And so he is on a very peculiar, specific mission to destroy us, okay? And now we get to see in very, you know, uh, visual form those two strategies in the form of these two beasts, okay? Uh, so that's that kind of gives you, one is the Antichrist, which I'll explain, and the other is the false prophet, which I'll also explain, all right? So first section is verses 1 through 10. This is Revelation 13. Let's just read it. And I saw a beast... "'Rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, "'with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. "'And the beast that I saw was like a leopard.'" Just picture it. "'Like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, "'and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. "'And to it the dragon,' being Satan, "'gave his power and his throne and great authority.'" One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We've seen that time period over and over and over again in different forms, three and a half years 14 months, 1,260 days, a, a year and a year and times a year or whatever that other one is, right? Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. All right, so those who dwell in heaven are Christians, right? Because so we've also seen the phrase those who dwell on the earth, which is always uh, a phrase referring to those who are not Christians, all right? Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth and world will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So that last little poem, you might have to read that like ten times to understand what he's saying. All right? So I'll just clue you in. What he's saying is, if anyone be taken captive, in other words, if you anyone who takes the people of God captive will be made captive by God. Anyone who kills the people of God will be killed by God. All right? It's a picture of judgment. All right. So what in the world? Like I say that every week. That's an awful lot of imagery, isn't it, to try to just decode and decipher. Um, so we'll just work our way through it slowly, and like I've said many times over in this series, don't get too hung up. Don't overthink it too much. Don't, don't become like an uh, FBI analyst breaking this down into its smallest part and obsessing over some of the tiny details step back a little bit, get the overall picture, and then work your way in from there, all right? So let's start with the sea. This beast comes up out of the sea, right? What is the sea about? It's a prophetic symbol of worldly chaos, evil powers that set themselves against the kingdom of God. It's all over uh, the scripture, and I gave you a list of scriptures, and the list is there because I'm not going to read them all, all right? But that's what, so we could say the sea, this beast is coming out of this this symbol of chaos and anti-God, rebellion, worldliness, okay? Then we have Daniel 7, also another rabbit hole, all right? In Daniel 7, you can go read it this week. That's our interpretive key to understand this. We have Daniel having a dream where there's four beasts, all right? Each one of them represents a king or you could say a kingdom that is set up to come against the people of God, all Right. And so, then, Revelation thirteen is this conglomer- conglomeration of all of, those, of the features of those four beasts in one. Okay, so it's the same basic message, but a little simpler than Daniel seven. So, the C beast of Revelation thirteen is all of those together. This is reducing the, re- the reducing of four into one. Makes it clear to me personally, and many others, that this is not about any one government or nation. It's a symbol of any nation that looks like this, okay? So in my opinion, we're not looking for, it's not like, oh, it's Russia. And then we are like, oh, the Cold War's over. It can't be Russia. Now it's got to be North Korea or some other nation, right? And we're constantly looking for the country that looks the most like this description. The truth is there are, many and have been many and will be many nations that look that would match this description right it's about any demonized persecuting individual government institution that sets itself against god's people and i would also include the ideas and philosophies that such a beast produces right so you could include some seminaries in that description some governments that not only are persecuting the church but but propagate ideas and philosophies that cause others to do the same thing. The features of it are it's arrogant and mocking towards the name of God and his church. You can see that right there in the description. And it sets itself up as its own deity, the false savior of the world. And I think when you start to see it that way, all kinds of things come to mind, right? And with Korea certainly it's one of them. Maybe the best current example of that. It's obvious that John, who wrote this or saw these visions and recorded them, John must have had Nero and Rome in mind. If you look back at history, you can start to see lots of examples in history. In John's day, Nero, the great persecutor, or infamous persecutor, I shouldn't say great, the infamous persecutor of Christians um, and Rome at the time certainly fit this description. But the relevance of that doesn't end with Rome. And I think this is one of the things people tend to struggle with with biblical prophecy in general, is you usually have kind of two layers, at least two layers of fulfillment. You read through the book of Isaiah, any Old Testament prophet, you'll see the same thing. There's the immediate fulfillment. You can look at their history and see that, like in the book of Joel, it's talking about them being invaded by Assyrians. And they're like locusts coming in. But then Peter at Acts chapter 2 references Joel and says, that's also about what's happening right now. And so you have two layers, right? Two layers of fulfillment, and that's kind of like this. Certainly Rome fit this description, but I think it's about much more than that. I think it is irrespective of time, culture, or border, and we have seen many, many, many over throughout history examples of nations, governments, institutions, and people that were in charge of those institutions who have been dead set against the church and have done everything they could to shut it down. And what have they found as a result is the church has only grown. The more you resist her, the faster she spreads. It never, ever works. It always has the opposite effect. If you want to shut the church down, make things easy for her, right? Right? Make her nice and comfortable. Aren't you the least effective when you are super comfortable and everything's easy and there's no pressure pushing you to press into God? You know, the easiest place possible. You're also in the most dangerous place. And I think this is what we see happen here. Sam Storms has written a lot of really great books about this topic, sums it up really nicely saying, the beast at the time when John wrote Revelation was the Roman Empire. At another time, the beast was the Aryan heresy in the 4th century that denied the deity of Jesus Christ. The beast is at one time the emperor Decius, 3rd century persecutor of the church. At another, evolutionary Darwinism. The beast is the late medieval Roman Catholic papacy, modern Protestant liberalism, Marxism, the radical feminist movement, the Pelagian heresy of the 5th century, communism, Joseph Stalin, the 17th century enlightenment, 18th century deism, Roe v. Wade, the state persecution of Christians in China and North Korea, militant atheism in the 21st century, and ISIS. Each of these is individually and on its own the beast. That's what you need to get. Individually, on its own, and collectively the beast. All of these are collectively and in unity the beast. Will there also be a single person at the end of the age who embodies in consummate form all the characteristics of the many previous historical manifestations of the beast. If so, should we call this person the Antichrist? Probably. I've been using the word probably an awful lot in the sermon series, right? So you kind of have to read not just Revelation, but all Old Testament prophecy with these kind of dual fulfillments. You'll see them all over the place. You can't say this wasn't about them this wasn't about Rome, but it was because it was, but it's also about lots of other things. Now a little nod to the other, other popular interpretation, which I disagree with, that I have to do. Those coming from the popular dispensational futurist perspective, which I've mentioned a few times, will be looking for only one individual in the future who will be alone, the Antichrist. And if you have been taught this book at all before, that's more than likely what you were taught. I believe this is to be an unnecessary restriction on the meaning of John's vision that is unwarranted by the text and the symbolic nature of the entire book. So if we're not looking for one dude. There's been too many, first of all, because it's Hitler, but Hitler is gone. It's Stalin, but Stalin is gone. And you can go through, and after a while, you start to realize, wait a minute, maybe this is more like a type than it is one individual person. Um... I dare you just go on YouTube and type in, who is the Antichrist? (laughs) It's fun. You just can't take any of it too seriously, all right? But it is interesting because it's amazing how politics immediately become a part of the, the definition of how people read the Bible when that topic comes up. All right, so what's this Antichrist thing? What's that mean? The name Antichrist appears nowhere in Revelation. Where it comes from is John's epistles instead. I'm not going to read all of them. I'll just give you one example. 1 John 2.18. John says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, in my view, that seals it. It's not one. Many Antichrists, plural, have come. Also First John 2:22, 1 John 4:3 and second John 7, same thing. All right? So what this is is someone who is in their identity, in their purpose in life, whether they know it or not, is to be against the things that Christ is for, which is and it's manifested in its posture and position and attitude against the church. Someone who is trying to undermine, or resist God's purpose on the earth. And that can be a lot of different people. Antichrist is a good description of the beast, but so is counterfeit Christ. It's another way we could look at it. The parallels are easy to see here in these verses. He's given all the dragons authority in the same way that Jesus was given all of God's authority. What did he say after the resurrection? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The dragon and the beast are parallel, I think, to the father and Jesus. To have a mortal wound is almost identical in the Greek with verse five, chapter 5, verse 6, a description of the lamb who was slain. It's almost the exact same phrase. It's a mortal wound that he miraculously comes back from. The beast's mortal wound is then healed like the resurrection of Jesus, a counterfeit resurrection. The beast commands worship of himself, Jesus does as well. The beast makes war against the saints, and Christ redeems them. Satan loves to create and offer you counterfeits, where God gives you a promise to bless you and protect you and redeem you and give you joy and be your father, and all these promises from God that He promises you. And what does Satan do? He's very unoriginal. He goes, I'll take what God has promised and I'll offer a less awesome but immediate uh, you know, exchange, a counterfeit. you got to wait for God to give you the good thing. I'll give you the kind of good thing right now. you got to wait for the great steak dinner in heaven with Jesus. I'll give you a McDonald's cheeseburger right now. And you're like, well, I am kind of hungry. And you just eat it, right? You take what he offers you, the counterfeit, because you're just impatient. You see the same picture in in Genesis with Adam and Eve. It was the temptation Satan brought to her. God's holding out on you. He promised you all this blessing. Tell you what, just take it for yourself right now. He's a counterfeit artist. That's what he does. all right let's look at the second beast this one's a little simpler just a little bit verses 11 to 18 he says then i saw another beast rising out of the earth And so this time it's not the sea it's the earth it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead, or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Here it comes. I'm going to say it out loud. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. There it is. The moment we've all waited for. And it's in chapter 13, no less. Oh, God help us. We get into some silly stuff. All right. So what's this all about? Um, If you've seen, I don't know if anybody, I started to play it, but I thought it would just take us down the wrong path. Um, A video that went viral like a year or two ago with a lady who was at some like, like, you know, craft market kind of thing with a booth and she was really worked up over monster soda. Remember that? And she had looked at the can of a monster soda and had worked out a code that equaled the mark of the beast and she, was, she had paid good money for this booth, and she was trying to you know, warn people that if you drink monster soda, you're taking on the mark of the beast. And... It's nuts. That's crazy town, all right? You have entered crazy town, and you need to leave immediately, all right? Um, that is not what this is about, okay? The beast comes from the earth and serves the first beast by performing signs and wonders pointing to the resurrection of the beast as a reason to worship it. The earth beast fashions an idol and forces the earth to worship it, continually citing the kind of counterfeit resurrection as the reason that we would worship it. And this is the reason we worship Jesus. It's because he really did raise himself from the dead. It's another counterfeit. Later in several places in Revelation, the second beast is called the false prophet. This really is a helpful clue into how to look at this, okay? Um, there's a list of verses there if you want them. Um, false prophets and false teachers are like New Testament, Old Testament equivalents. What does a false prophet do? He or she says what God says, but it's not really what God says. And they are it's with the intent of turning people away from God. It's why they were killed in the Old Testament it was so dangerous to have somebody speaking for God when they're, and it's a lie, they're not actually speaking for God. Same thing for a false teacher. False teacher does the same thing. He says, this is what God says in his word, and it's not really what he says. It's very dangerous. Paul was very passionate. It's one of the things he was most passionate about, about getting false teachers out of the church. He would weep over it, literally would weep over it. We don't have the same kind of, <laughs> we just sort of tolerate that stuff. But Paul recognized, especially 1 and 2 Timothy, how dangerous false teachers and false prophets are just because people follow them, and they follow them away from Christ, away from the kingdom of God and into hell. The point is, false prophets and teachers rarely appear to be false, which is what this beast, this beast is deceptive. He's a false prophet, but he looks like he performs miracles. He looks impressive. He looks very, might we say, Christian, very, might we say, anointed, quote-unquote. They rarely appear to be false. They may or may not be found in the pews on Sunday. It's a wrong assumption that because the imagery of Revelation 13 is so dramatic that the beast will be obviously invisibly demonically motivated. So we're kind of on guard against this kind of obviously creepy guy like we've seen in Christian movies, right, where he's got like horns under his hat, you know, and all you got to do is once you see the horns, you know this guy is the Antichrist, like, and, it's, and we don't look out for the false teachers who are in the church leading people away from Christ under the name of Christian. We need to be discerning, and we need to know the truth from the source, the Scripture. It's one of the reasons why it's so important. And this stuff is happening all the time. Entire churches just abandoning the Scripture wholesale. People in those churches saying, wow, this, this is really well-meaning. They're just trying to win people to Christ. So they're just things they're not going to talk about. I'm okay with that. My favorite this past year was Andy Stanley saying we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. It's about time we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And the motivation for saying that was that unbelievers and new Christians don't understand the Old Testament, so we shouldn't teach it to them. We should just stick to the New Testament. No, it's just because you're a bad teacher. Right? Maybe instead of not talking about the Old Testament, we we should just learn how to talk about the Old Testament. Right, that kind of thing is happening all the time. That's that's just because that was public. It was very public and high profile because it's a big mega church. Right, but that sort of thing is happening everywhere, and that is, but not sounding too crazy. That's the second beast, right, rearing this ugly, nasty head right in the middle of the church. The false prophet will appear in this age. I'm convinced. More often than not, as a kind, seemingly well-intentioned, empathetic person or organization that just wants everyone to get along. It will not be this scary, menacing figure that we imagine. The false prophet will be promoting a false unity around false agreement, around not around the truth, but around the lack of it. The false prophet will tell you to simply stop believing the more offensive and difficult truths of Scripture, beginning with emphasizing God's love over his holiness. He's talking about how God is love. How can that be? The counterfeit Christ. Jesus talked about love. He sure did. He also talked about some other stuff. Talked about hell more than anybody, for example. So just as the first beast is a counterfeit Christ, this beast, I would say, is a counterfeit Holy Spirit with the power and the miracles and the visible demonstrations of power that came with him. So I think I see a, a false trinity. The dragon is a false father. The first beast, the Antichrist, is a false Christ. And the third beast, the false prophet, is a false Holy Spirit. Satan is very unoriginal. He just copies what God does. All right, what about the mark of the beast? That's why we're all here. The mark of the beast is not a physical mark. Sorry. Get your tattoos. If you want to get a barcode on yourself, as dumb as that is, it doesn't mean you belong to Satan, all right? And my apologies if you actually have a barcode on yourself. It's not what this is about. It's the counterpoint to Revelation 7, 3 to 8, and 14 1, where Jesus puts his name on the forehead of those that belong to him and the name of the Father on their foreheads. He writes it on them on two places, two different scriptures, two different instances. If you're going to argue for a literal, physical mark of Satan, then you must also argue for a literal, physical mark of Jesus and start tattooing Christians when they become Christians. But the name Jesus, if you want to get real literal, right on their forehead. All right, because they are parallel ideas. Satan counterfeiting one for the other. Okay? You at least be consistent. All right? If you're going to freak out about the barcode on the back of your monster soda, then I want to see a big tattoo of the world this item belongs to Jesus Christ on your forehead. Right? It's not what this is about, it's about ownership. It's about identity. It's about who you belong to. If you do not belong to Jesus, you belong to Satan. It is a binary system, black and white, one or the other. That's what this scripture is about. What it's saying is you belong to one or the other. There is no in-between. There's no almost his. There's no almost his name is on me. It either is or it isn't, right? And when God puts his name on you, that is now who you are. It's your name. It's your identity. You're no longer labeled with anything but his name. We talked about that back when we preached on that chapter. But The opposite is also true. What about the 666? This one's harder. I'll give you two viable theories, all right? I call them theories because it's a big fat probably, all right? One is it's Nero using gematria, which I'll explain in a second. Or it's a symbol of the false trinity, all right? What is gematria? Another fun one to Google, all right? Gematria is the practice of assigning numbers to the alphabet. This is a very common practice from both pagans and Hebrews of the day. I think it's a bad practice, personally, all right? Where they would, add, adding, they would assign numbers to all the letters of the alphabet, And they'll take Nero's name, for example, add up the numbers, and you get 666. right? And it was kind of, think of it like a meme for you kids, all right? It was kind of a cultural meme for Nero, which was the number 666 or 616, depending on if you were reading Latin or Greek, right? So it might be a nod or a reference to him. There's some historical evidence of that. It's not very strong. It's really one place from Irenaeus um, that that was the case in the culture, and if that was true, then it would make sense. All right? The other theory is that the number seven is a ubiquitous symbol in Revelation. We've seen that over and over again for divine completeness or perfection. That number seven has been repeated, I don't know, I think it might be 100 times. It's a lot. So three sevens would be the trinity, three sixes would be the counterfeit. That also makes some sense to me. So what do I think it is? I think it might be both. Why not? Let's go with both. But I don't think it's anything more than that. It's just a symbolic number. So what are the two main strategies of Satan in our day? Let's kind of try to sum this up as best we can. One is looking at the first beast, which is he wants to resist Christ and his people through direct persecution, worldliness, rebellion, and even violence. We had Dan in his intro to the Apostles' Creed this morning brought that up. And then Elisa talks about a young Muslim man considering becoming a Christian and following Christ, knowing what it's going to mean is the persecution of his family against him. And we don't live in that world, but we need to wrestle with the possibility of it because that's how serious your belief is. Even if you're not always experiencing the direct consequences of it, the stakes are still high. And Satan is desperate to get in the way of that. Secondly, I think we could say Satan's second strategy is to offer the world false saviors drawing their worship away from their one true god this is to me is the best description of our current state of our culture obsessively worshiping as many different little gods as we can we can start listing them right everything from stuff which is a junk drawer term for all the junk (laughs) that we just buy because it has to be the newest thing I mean, get on the phone with ATT, Heather did yesterday just to change something about our plan, and she's trying to see I see you could have a new phone. You want a new phone? It's quote unquote free. You're like, why? I just got a phone. Like, literally, just got a phone. Why are you trying to sell me another? Because it's the newest one. You only have a nine? Like, it's just, it still makes calls. You know, I can do all the things I need to do, but it's not the latest, biggest number, right? That's, a, that's idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. The, the, the God of convenience. I want it now, and I don't want to have to go anywhere for it. I really want now that the, you know, the grocery stores bring the groceries to my house. It's glorious. I'm like, I wonder what it would take if I could, like, stay on the couch and hang like five dollars on the doorknob with a note that said just put it on the counter if I could get them to do that and I wouldn't have to go to the door and then the next step would be five dollars and a note that says just put it away in the fridge and I might actually be able to get things going, a system where I could not ever have to move from my couch to do anything. Could you just, while you're here, could you make me a sandwich? Another $5, right? Could you put the items together, put them in the oven, and then bring it to me on the count? Like, how far can we take this, right? Convenience is insane. And we worship it, don't we? Eh, it takes too long. It's taking forever. This is that, this is the dragon strategy is to Offer us false saviors who can satisfy your needs, make you at least feel like you've redeemed yourself by just trying to cover the ache you feel, the emptiness you feel without God, and to fill it with other things, and to have you obsessively chasing after that full inside feeling Some other way than Jesus, and he is very, very, very good at offering alternatives. Choose your own religion. Religion becomes an idol. Just go to the smorgasbord buffet of religious choices, and no matter, you just create your own Frankenbeast of a religion. Religion that makes no sense, but you just believe, and you write the word "I believe" all over stuff right just believe man put it on the on your butt cheeks on your sweatpants and a little arc i believe or trust faith that's a great one right you put it all over everything you got drive through the suburbs you see those planks of wood now and they say like home like we're labeling everything now but whatever and you can get them, let's say, like faith and believe and whatever. And It's like, I just, I'm a spiritual person. And you're like, well, what do you actually believe? And you get, start getting to details, and it's like a Frankenstein of things that, make no, that don't even go together. And they don't, we don't want to think about it because this is what makes, this is my truth. It's what makes me feel enlightened. That's the beast alluring you and making you worship something other than Jesus. Just about anything can become an idol. So we have to be careful of this in the church, too, because we also do it. We worship our denomination, we worship our dislike of denominations, (laughs) we worship our doctrinal persuasions, whatever it is. So we must guard our worship both on Sunday and in life. The question is who has your attention? Who has your fear and who has your praise? Who really has it? It also makes you think about tyrannical governments are fertile ground for an antichrist spirit. Don't think this can't happen in the United States. As our government leaders gather more and more power, tyrannical leadership is going to increase all over the world. We seem to have adopted the mentality in the U.S. in the last 50 years that tyranny and abuse of power is okay so long as it's tyranny in the direction that we like. And we, I think we have forgotten that power held by one person is a really bad idea no matter who that person might be, unless it's Jesus. We need to learn from history, and as I read this, it just reminds me all over again of how Satan works. The antidote to the activity of the Antichrist and his false prophet is not political influence or military might. The solution is to continue to bear witness, going back a couple of weeks, to bear witness to the risen Christ who holds all the authority, to worship him, and to bear witness to him no matter what the cost is. Thinking about the vote coming up this year, how can you bear witness to Christ with how you vote? I think that's a good question. That's what I'm going to start saying to everybody. I'm not going to say, this is what you should do when you vote. It's up to you. I don't really care. Just bear witness to Christ. And the way you talk about politics, the way you talk about church, the way you talk about things at work, the way you talk about your life, the way you talk about other people, you bear witness to Christ and don't agree with the accuser, right? Right? False teaching is a much deadlier plague on the church than most realize. The old adage that America doesn't need more head knowledge is one of the dumbest things we ever said. This is a whole other teaching, but it needs more heart knowledge. That's also a false dichotomy. No such separation exists in the Bible, by the way. They're actually connected. What you know about God is connected to what you feel about God directly and vice versa. I am increasingly concerned about false teaching in the church and the repercussions of that down generations. As one beast rises after another around the world, it's more important than ever to know your Bible so that you can identify and reject false teaching. It's really important. Because not everything is obvious. And lastly, signs of wonders can be counterfeited by Satan. <gasps> that one disturbs me a little bit. Because we put so much stock in that. Satan has power, and he counterfeits everything, including fake, false miracles. Demonic miracles, maybe you could say. That one bothers me, but it's right there in the in the text. Just because someone seems to be gifted or even performs miracles does not mean that they are in Christ. It doesn't. I'm tempted to cite examples, but that gets sticky, right? You just know, just because miracles are happening doesn't mean they are approved by God. What have I told you? If you want to know somebody, if somebody's a full of the Spirit or not, look for the fruit of the Spirit. Not for what they do on the stage not for the miracles they perform. The fruit of the Spirit is the true mark of a Spirit-filled life, not what appears to be power and miracles and smooth talking. There's a lot of wisdom in here in these verses once I think you see get past the imagery. All right, I'd like to pray for us. I think navigating this stuff in the world is pretty tricky. And it gets trickier all the time. To so especially regarding our worship and that God would protect our worship, right? And so why don't we stand up together? And I'll pray for you.